What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 59 of the 2QB Experience. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host. You can find me on Twitter at Greg Sosk. Find all my work at 2QBs.com. On the other line, we have another contributor to 2QBs and a consultant with Draft Day Consultants. It's Sean Slavin. And you can find him on Twitter at Slavin22. That's S-L-A-V-I-N-22. Sean, welcome to the show. It's good to have you, man. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah, so... uh you do a, a really cool piece for us at 2QBs, and I'm a little mad that we didn't think of like doing something like this at the site last year, but you have an article series called 2QB or Not 2QB. It's a, it's a set of articles every week where you look at super flex decisions. You are looking at you know when it's correct or, or seemingly correct to start a wide receiver, a running back, or maybe even a tight end in your super flex spot instead of a QB, because we 2QB players and super flex players know that that's normally a spot reserved for quarterbacks. But, you know, if we if we have the flexibility to put other positions in there, that is something that we should be considering from time to time. Um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your process and your methodology for coming up with that. And I know it's based mostly on projections, but just kind of as, a, as an aside here, in one of my Superflex best ball leagues, my best score from this week, week seven, is going to use only one quarterback, despite the fact that it's a super flex league. Uh, Deshaun Watson was on by. Trevor Semien and Paxton Lynch did nothing, right? I mean, Paxton Lynch literally is, is a complete zero, uh, but Se- Semien didn't play well either. And so that means that DeAndre Washington, Bilal Powell, and Paul Richardson all scored over Semien. I, and I just can't guarantee that I would have started all three of those guys over him if I was setting this lineup for a super flex league, right? So, Let's kind of take a look at what you know about this, maybe with the benefit of some hindsight analysis. And how often do you see quarterbacks actually falling below that super flex cutoff to this point in the season? Well, if you read my article and I put the images up of the charts that show how many players at each flex position are projected to outscore each starting quarterback for the week. And especially if you look at the non-PPR or half-PPR, there aren't too many players projected to outscore quarterbacks. You get some running backs that are projected to outscore the the, the lower-barrel uh, quarterbacks. and But besides that, there's, there's not too many wide receivers or tight ends that creep up until you get to full PPR. But I was doing some hindsight analysis for the show, and... Uh, I realized that I, I really haven't done that yet. And it was really interesting because a lot more running backs and wide receivers especially outscore quarterbacks any given week. But it's it's not necessarily enough to make me think there's something wrong with the projections. It's just that... Um, it could be variants. It could be a lot of different things that are contributing, right? Like you're looking at... And, and especially when you talk about having to make those decisions in any given week, right? Because we're talking about the floor and the ceiling of all these different players that we're, you know, ranking effectively amongst each other. It's different for quarterbacks. They have a built-in floor. They have an inherent ceiling just because they touch the ball so much. That baseline is just simply going to be better than most other positions every week. And I imagine that when you looked back at this stuff, and you found that more running backs and more wide receivers were hitting, that 
probably had more to do with variance, and they were probably more unpredictable players in the first place, right? Like, if you look at Week 7, TJ Yeldon had a huge game. But there's no way you were ever going to start TJ Yeldon over any quarterback on your roster in a Superflex League, right? Right. And that's, uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. Even though I expect the same trend where more running backs and wide receivers outscore quarterbacks than I'll project, I still, I still looked at how many points quarterbacks are scoring on average versus how much I'm projecting them on average. And it's pretty, it's pretty close. I'm a little high, but if you notice the first couple weeks, like quarterback scoring was really down and it's bounced back up. So I, I just think there's a lot of unpredictable running backs and wide receivers that have some boom games, but it doesn't mean we should have played them. You know, it's just, just standard variance that happens in fantasy football. <laughs> yep. Process over results, right? So, so when you do this article, you base that on projections. You actually project points for all the relevant QBs, all the relevant running backs and wide receivers. And can you tell us a little bit about how you decide, like what, what the process is of deciding where a running back or a wide receiver might have merit over, you know, a, a quarterback in a super flex spot? Yeah. So uh, I do my weekly projections for each position and uh, in, in the beginning weeks, I was just kind of, looking at the running backs that were right around the quarterback 28 or say, and if that was Joe Flacco and saying these quarterbacks in his range are above, I'd start over him. But I noticed the bottom six quarterbacks or so that I projected, if it's below 15 points, they've really been scoring a lot less than that. Sometimes they'll score a little more, but a lot of the times it's been less than 12. So I've, really been considering running backs and wide receivers that reach within a point or two of a quarterback. And not that we're definitely going to play, but especially if it's someone with a nightmare matchup against Jacksonville, the new, the new nightmare matchup. Um, So that, that's one thing that I've learned from writing this article is that there it's, it's still in your best interest to start, two QBs if, if you have them, if they're healthy and not on buys. But in those really tough matchups, especially if it's a poor quarterback, um, I'm more willing to start a flex player than I was going into the year. Yeah, you at least have to make a decision at that point, right? And Right. Not everyone's going to be doing projections week to week, and not everyone has access to your projections, of course. So what would you say to like a listener who maybe was looking for a shortcut in their analysis to help make these decisions between a, a QB and a non-QB? I mean, you, you touched on it a little bit. If, if the matchup for the quarterback is bad, what are you looking for on the other side? What are you looking for with the running back or the wide receiver? Is it just looking for good matchups, or is it just looking for pure volume? What, what do you? What makes a player a non-QB? more likely to kind of belong in that super flex spot over a quarterback? I'd definitely say they'd have to have a high opportunity because quarterbacks, like you said, have that inherent floor. Even lowest quarterbacks in my projections still have a, are still averaging double digit points for running backs and wide receivers. It's just, the better ones are going to score that, but once you get to players that we're considering in the flex spot and the super flex spot, it's it's rare for 
a running back and a, or a wide receiver to have that as their floor, especially if you're if you're looking for more boomer bust and your quarterback's playing a really tough defense. I mean, look for some high ceiling running backs and wide receivers and know that that's what you're banking on because you really don't have that high ceiling when you're starting Jacoby Brissett against the Jaguars. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get into the Week 7 recap. Thanks for kind of running us through your, your process there with the Superflex decisions. But we got a lot to cover in terms of Week 7 and looking forward to Week 8. we got to start with Carson Palmer. Uh, went down with a broken arm. Drew Stanton is the next man up, but we know that Blaine Gabbard is potentially also in the picture. I, I really do think that Gabbard is going to get a shot sooner rather than later. And if I had to do my rest-of-season rankings you know, right now, I'm, I'm planning on doing those uh, later tonight or tomorrow, I will probably have Gabbert ranked very close to Stanton, if not higher, just because I think we know what we have with Stanton. What do you see being the fallout from this injury to Palmer, Sean? And maybe talk about what you think is going to happen to the other offensive skill position players for the Cardinals moving forward. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, Stanton gets the edge just because he was the number two on the depth chart coming in, and he came in and replaced Palmer. I mean, they really showed that they they leaned on the running game while he was in, and that's been pretty typical when Stanton's played in the past. And I really think if he if he doesn't show out this week, that it, it could be a quick trigger finger to pull him and put Gabbard in. And David Johnson's not there anymore either, so it's like even if they do want to lean on the run, you're doing it with an aging Adrian Peterson. You're doing it with Andre Ellington out of the backfield. I just – this might become one of those teams that we just have to stay away from from a fantasy perspective, kind of like Baltimore or even you know the Jaguars outside of these weird weeks where they get to play the Colts. What, I mean, I, I would assume you're kind of in the same boat on the Cardinals. You're not, you're not actively looking to start these guys. Right. I mean, if you have – Larry Fitzgerald, he's still going to get a significant downgrade, but a downgrade from a borderline wide receiver one, wide receiver two is, is still startable. But besides him, those uh, secondary wide receivers are no longer startable. I'd still stash John or Jaron Brown, whichever one you like out of the two. Just in, in, in case uh, Gabbert comes in and he's able to elevate the offense to somewhere near Carson Palmer, but I wouldn't trust any of the Cardinals' offensive players besides Larry Fitzgerald. Yeah, I think one of the subtle benefits, or not benefits, but one of the subtle things that's going in Stanton's favor and in Gabbert's favor is the fact that that Cardinals' defense is worse this year than it has been in years past. So I could see just more games where they have to throw and even if they want to lean on the run it's just not going to happen because their defense has been giving up more points than maybe we expected at the beginning of the year but yeah this is a a pretty gross situation i'm not really looking forward to to dealing with it moving forward because it, it does feel like it's going to be one of those places where fantasy players just go to die unfortunately it's i i'm, I'm worried about it for sure do you, do you want to go into any more detail about you know those position players now that palmer's gone Yes, um, I did some research into uh, the splits by position for any players that played with Gabbert or Stanton while they were starting and compared that to Carson Palmer. And this is over since 2009. 
And going from Carson Palmer to Drew Stanton, there's at least a 20% decrease in fantasy points at every position, running back, wide receiver, and tight end. And wide receiver, it's even a little more than that. That's savage. (laughs) And then... Bling Gabbert, it's similar. It's even uh, actually a steeper decline for wide receivers because he really he targets tight ends and running backs uh, pretty heavily, and especially tight ends. Tight ends have actually scored more playing with Bling Gabbert than Carson Palmer, which is interesting because going from Palmer to Gabbert or Stanton at every other position, it was a significant decrease but if Gabbard ends up playing Jermaine Gresham is still he's still a low low floor low ceiling player but if you're in a tight end premium league two tight end league or something like the Scott Fishbowl playing Gabbard might be a slight increase for uh Jermaine Gresham yeah I like that and and I do think that that can give a little extra hope for Larry Fitzgerald too and I I don't mean to belittle Fitzgerald in any way by saying he's he's just a tight end at this stage in his career I, I'm not saying that but he does operate in that uh, in a similar portion of the field for the most part he's, he's going to be running most of his routes out of the slot I think that he's the one kind of offensive guy you can probably feel okay about even though we know he's not going to be as good as he was with Palmer um, anything else on on the Cardinals before we move on Sean nope that wraps it up for me all right let's talk about the Browns and whatever the hell Hugh Jackson is doing with Deshaun Kaiser, man. Like I've talked about this before. They really have not set him up for success. They've asked him to do way too much considering the fact that he is a a pretty raw rookie prospect. And I just, I don't see how jerking him around like this really helps, but he got benched yet again in week seven, this time for Cody Kessler instead of Kevin Hogan. Kessler came in, didn't do a whole lot either. I would imagine that Kessler is going to start this week. I I just don't know what the hell we do here. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, it's it's a messy situation, and it's it's tough to trust whoever they pick as the starting quarterback. I mean, the amount of times they've replaced a quarterback mid game is just it's it, laughable. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, they did it a couple times last year, and they even took Kessler out. Um, I think it was a Thursday night game against the Ravens and he was playing fine and they put in Josh McCown and he throws three and two or three interceptions. And it's just Hugh Jackson has been quick to pull them. And I just, I, I think it's egregious, but so I obviously wouldn't start Kessler this week unless you're in a desperate situation. If it's in a two QB league where you don't have the option to put in a flex player and you really have no other there's no other quarterbacks, and that's who you picked up, then it, he might do okay, but it's starting him has no confidence for me. He'll, he'll be one that I'll suggest pretty much any running back or wide receiver that you expect to get near double-digit points, I would start over him next week. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't think that Kessler's a, a good play right away, but he was okay last year, and that is... Faint praise, but for two QB fantasy players, that's an okay quarterback is okay sometimes. Like the, these guys only have to give you maybe 12 to 15 points, and because of how much they throw the ball, even if the team is bad, uh, you know, they can still have that volume to carry you to, you know, startability at some point. And so I, I don't hate him as a pickup, 
but you're right. Like this, this particular week, this matchup that's coming up is not one where I'm really excited to use him um, in replacement of anybody, really. What about Jay Cutler going down and Matt Moore stepping in for the Dolphins? How much of an upgrade does Moore represent, if any? Do you think that this offense might be able to get better with him under center? I think there's opportunity for a slight upgrade. I I looked at the splits with Moore and Cutler, similar to what I was talking about with the Arizona quarterbacks, but uh, the the raw numbers aren't really applicable here as Jay Cutler and Matt Moore are both different quarterbacks than they were four, five, eight years ago. Jay Cutler's really regressed, and Matt, Matt Moore has played better the last couple of years when he's filled in than he ever has. So I, I definitely think there's opportunity for upgrade, but I, I wouldn't say significantly. Yeah, that sounds about right. Did you happen to dive into any of the positional stuff like you did with Arizona with the Dolphins and maybe see that one position might be due for more of an upgrade than the other with this switch to Matt Moore? As far as uh, target shares, uh, wide receivers got a little bump. It would get a little bump going from Matt Moore. Nothing too crazy. It's like 4%, and tight ends drop a little bit, but... Most people aren't starting Julius Thomas anyway, so it might be a slight upgrade for the wide receivers, but I wouldn't. It doesn't move the needle too much for me. But for a backup quarterback to come in and have a potential for a slight upgrade and maybe even better than that, it's not many quarterback situations around the league that can say that. Yeah, it's it's a strange one, and it was one that perplexed us a little bit at the beginning of the year when they signed Cutler, because we had seen Cutler play the previous couple of years, and he wasn't good then, and we saw Matt Moore do okay in relief of Tannehill last season. There were people, myself included, who thought that maybe Moore would have been the better guy to go with from the jump, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, because if Moore plays capably whatsoever... I don't know if Jay Cutler's coming back from that injury to a starting gig. We can both agree here that Moore would definitely be the guy to add over Kessler, Stanton, and Gabbert, correct? Right. He may enter the QB2 forecast in any given week, but he's closer to probably right outside that top 25 or right around there. And for Kessler right now, he's he, he's not sniffing that until he proves it and Stanton and Gabbert, I don't expect to get there even if they take the job over. Yeah, I just think that Moore's in the best situation, too. He's got a good coach. He's got a solid running game around him. Uh, You know, those receivers there are fine. I mean, you could say similar things for Stanton and Gabbert in Arizona, but I think that we've seen Matt Moore be better than those two guys. And when it comes to bad quarterbacks, one thing that I really want to see is better offensive line play. And I don't know if the Dolphins' offensive line qualifies as really good or anything, but that Cardinals' offensive line is a liability, and I think that that's going to cause Stanton and Gabbert some fits moving forward. Let's get to Aaron Jones, who reasserted himself, finally, in Week 7, after I ranted and raved on last episode about <laughs> you know how they screwed that up, splitting time between him and Ty Montgomery. And... It it bugs me that it took Aaron Rodgers getting hurt for them to decide to lean on this, you know, very good young running back in Jones. 
Because if they had taken that sort of mentality with Rodgers, maybe Rodgers doesn't get hurt, right? Like, I, I just don't see why it, why these coaches are so uh, stubborn or afraid, or I don't know what it is that makes them do it, but they, they just, they stick with the guys they know. They stick with the guys who have been there. And yes, there's value to loyalty. There's value to continuity. But it was one of those things where in the previous weeks, Aaron Jones really showed that he was the best runner of the RBs that they had there in Green Bay. And week seven was another testament to that. So are, are you with me in thinking that Jones is, is really the guy to own here in Green Bay as backfield going forward? Are you like are you willing to drop Ty Montgomery at this point, or is he still a guy that you're holding on to? I would still hold on to Ty Montgomery unless it's a really shallow format. But I think Ty Montgomery will still be involved somewhat. Definitely not enough to start this week. Because um, I think Aaron Jones proved that it's his backfield. If if they don't give him the full workload, maybe not full, but majority of the workload in week eight, it, it'd really be a mistake because he's really showed out when he's gotten the opportunity. His college production numbers were are awesome. He fell to the, what, fourth round in the draft? Yep. I think that was just because he didn't have crazy amount of speed. He's he's, he's average there, but his agility and burst scores, if you look on playerprofile.com, they're right around the 85th percentile, and you see him run, and he's he's really quick. He just looks natural carrying the ball, and, and way more natural than Ty Montgomery, which makes sense. Montgomery is a converted wide receiver, right? This is... Something that shouldn't surprise us that the guy who played running back in college is the better runner than the guy who didn't. And <laughs> I, I really don't understand why it took Green Bay this like and it's not that it took them that many weeks because and I think I agreed that he was a fourth round pick. It might have been Jamal Williams that went in the fourth and Jones was the fifth round pick. I can't remember, but Yeah, I I have it up here. Jones was the fifth and Jamal Williams was the was the fourth. So I get why it didn't take why they didn't go straight to Jones like from week one, right? Like they had Montgomery there, he knew the offense, he knew the pass blocking schemes, all that good stuff. And they drafted Jamal Williams higher, he got the first shot after that. My frustration was in week six, after Jones had kind of shown, I think proven to us that he was the back he was the best back there. They moved away from that in week six, and that that frustrated me. Let's move on. I don't want to get mad about it again. Mad online is, is not a good look. <laughs> Um, let's talk about a couple other running back situations. Uh, we can touch on this one briefly. Leonard Fournette was out. Chris Ivory did okay. He, he ended up with kind of a, a cheap touchdown, but TJ Yeldon was the guy who really blew up in that backfield. My question for you, Sean, is do you care uh, about this? or Because I, I expect Fournette to be back after the bye. I expect him to be back too. Uh, he, he says he was good to go back in the game in week six, but... Uh, they they held him out as a precaution. He's they they drafted him fourth overall, and as much as they, it seems like they need him. I mean, they T.J. Yeldon and Ivory were able, were able to step in and pretty much do exactly what he was doing. <laughs> not in the same way, not running people over, calling defenders over, begging for a collision. Uh, <laughs> Fournette's an interesting guy, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, I do think he 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 seemed like he wanted to play yesterday, and they're just being cautious, and they have a bye week next week, so I assume he'll be back. So 
it really seemed like the takeaway from yesterday is if you're looking for a handcuff for him, that's what you're taking away. If if you think Yeldon did enough where he's now the number two and really looked like it, especially with Ivory fumbling, it's it's really a handcuff situation. Yeah, I'm not really willing to go that far on Yeldon over Ivory yet. He had the one big play that makes his numbers look a little better. And, it, yeah, it's interesting because he was a guy that they invested in in the draft. Um, he was a little disappointing. But this might be a situation like Darren McFadden with the Cowboys where the reason he's not active and Alfred Morris is is because if their lead guy, Elliot does go down or Fournette does go down, they want to be able to use that younger, more talented or, or more explosive back in Yeldon slash McFadden than, you know, the the more plotting kind of veteran guy as the backup. But I don't know. I think Ivory still has value as a handcuff as well. But, you know, handcuffing is an inherently, you know, low upside proposition for the most part, at least during bye weeks. Um, right. Once, once the buys are over, then you can start thinking about it to protect your investments. But I don't know. I think Fournette will be fine. I think you're you're absolutely right about him sitting out. It was one of those things where he might have been able to play, but you know why force it when you're going up against a team as bad as the Colts with your bye the following week? Give him the full two weeks to get healthy and you know pick it back up the week after. So um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, last running back situation I want to touch on here is New England's. Uh, that running back committee is really coming into focus here for us. It's Deion Lewis and James White is the primary guys. You know, Lewis is the between the tackles guy. White is the pass catcher. And, you know, Lewis can catch the ball as well. Uh, Mike Gillisley is just a short yardage specialist at this point, a uh, goal line vulture. And Rex Burkhead is somewhere in the middle. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of analysis here for Deion Lewis and James White. I mean, White was already owned, especially in PPR leagues. Deion Lewis should have been a, a waiver pickup last week if he's still available. I think he's a guy you go after again this week. But my question for you is what you're doing with Gillsley and Burkhead. I actually dropped Gillsley from one of my rosters last night. Uh, I think it's okay to move on from him if you need the roster spot. Burkhead is trickier to me. What are you doing with these two guys? Gillsley, I'm, I'm fine dropping him. I think at this point you're really hoping for one of the other guys to go down for him to have value. It's, it's tough because even in this short yardage role, he could get three touchdowns in any week. So yeah, if, you're in a, if, you're in, if you're in a deep league and you just are crushed with bye weeks and you're looking at the waiver wire and there's nothing there, like start Gillisley because he might only get 20 yards or he might get 40 yards and three touchdowns. So, But besides that, like you, you can't rely on him and – Burkhead, his usage is probably going to be really inconsistent. He he might give valuable receiving work, but just another guy that I can't rely on starting him. Yeah, Gillisley is a good example of what we were talking about earlier with the Superflex decisions where you wouldn't start him over like a mediocre quarterback, but he will have weeks in theory where maybe he gets two TDs where he's going to score like a guy who you should have started in your Superflex, right? Exactly. Yeah, and it's just that you can't play into variance that much. It just doesn't work like that. A couple more notes before we get into our awards for the week. Um, Martavis Bryant, invisible again. Trade rumors are heating up. What are you doing with Bryant? Do you think he's a hold? Do you want to see if he gets to like a, a better situation? Or do you think he's potentially droppable? Like, what, What's your feel for Bryant at this point? 
I would hold on to him just because of the athleticism and the big playability. Um, but Juju uh, Smith-Schuster has really taken over as the number two. He's out-snapped him after the first couple weeks consistently. But Martavis is still a freak athlete, and he could get open for 80-yard touchdown on any play. That has value, but right now you need to be in a deeper format to start him until he starts getting more looks. Uh, the one thing I'll say is I th- it's really hard for me to see the Steelers trading him just as a playoff team to move an asset like that. E- even though he's not getting great looks, it, he'd really have to be like a major disturbance in the locker room, which isn't out of the question, but I just think if I was the Steelers, I'd do what it takes to make him happy. I, I don't know if that's <laughs> going to work because Juju's outplaying him right now, but I think still think he's a value to their offense. Yeah, we may be a little bit too far gone for that, but I, I kind of agree with you. Like, They're not that deep at wide receiver in the first place. If Antonio Brown or Juju were to get hurt, you don't want to be the team that traded away Martavis Bryant for, I don't know, I don't even know what they would go after. Like, what does that team need? Their defense is fine. Their offensive line is is pretty good at this point. Like, do they need a tight end? I mean, they just traded for Vance McDonald. Are they going to trade for another one? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm really curious to see how this goes. One thing I will say is that if he does move, if he does get traded from the Steelers to some of the situation, I might not even care what situation that is. I might be willing to to consider him a sell at that point because receivers are notorious for not necessarily being able to adapt to new teams and new offenses that quickly. Uh, so I think he'd have to go to like a really choice situation either with a really good quarterback or a place where he's just going to get a ton of volume right away. And I just don't know what team that is. And if he does move, I think that that represents a selling opportunity if you're the Martavis Bryant owner, Um, at least in redraft leagues. If you're a dynasty player, that's probably good for you in the long term, so I'd probably hold at that point. But, yeah, interesting situation with him. We'll have to keep an eye on that. You got anything else on the Steelers here before we move on? No, I agree with everything you just said. You (laughs) summed it up pretty well. All right. Uh, My last question is the Bears defense good? <laughs> I think it is good. As good as yesterday? No, but... <laughs> well, those two uh, TDs were both so fluky. It was like one Curtis right. Samuel, like, just stone hands a, a pitch, like, pro- what, probably like 95 times out of 100 he catches that and at least, you know, doesn't fumble. And then that interception was crazy. That ball popped up like 20 feet in the air. yeah. I will say the the Bears have some some nice young talent. Um, they're they're still a bit away from joining the top defenses in the league, but I think it'll surprise some people to see that the Bears defense is good. They've been a laughing stock the last couple of years. Maybe not laughing stock, but they, they've been pretty bad. But um, they they've had some good drafts in the past couple of years, and it seems at least on defense it's coming together and. On offense, they're just they're just running Howard and Cohen into the ground. <laughs> it's absurd. The, the how many 
pass attempts does Trubisky have over the past two games? It's like 11 or 14 or something ridiculous like that. Yeah. I, I just don't, I don't see how they can sustain this winning with, with such a limited offense. Like at some point their defense isn't going to come up with quite as many plays and either Trubisky is going to have to do something or they're just going to get eaten alive. Like, I just don't see this playing out in the long term. Do you? No, n- not at all. And as as well as it worked yesterday, it's it's hard to blame them, but they, there's no way they can sustain that. They they ran the ball 50 times yesterday, and I think upwards of 40 the week before. And even if you split that between two running backs, you're going to wear them down. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Benny Cunningham was getting some run before, and he did get hurt. So, like, there you go. Right. There's evidence of it right there. <laughs> let's uh, let's keep going. We got a lot to get to still. Uh, awards for the week. Uh, week 7, QB, boom. Uh, which quarterback outperformed your expectations the most this week? There, there were a few. Um, Derek Carr, Dak Prescott, Josh McCown, Jameis Winston. They, they, they all did really well this week, at least compared to expectations. Josh McCown is one that uh, really surprised me. I, I had him ranked pretty low, and uh, he tore apart the Dolphins' defense early. They, they couldn't get the win, but my boom of the week is Derek Carr, though. His first week back from the injury last week was really poor, and it, it's nice to see him connect with Amari Cooper finally. And he, they were just firing on all cylinders, Jared Cook had over 100 yards. Crabtree didn't do much, but then he finally connects with him for the touchdown. And it, it, it's nice to see Oakland's offense clicking, even though the run game hasn't been all that great. Yeah, I can't argue with any player being the overall QB1 for a week as the, the boom of the week. I do. I, I will pick a different player. I'm going to pick McCown. Uh, you you laid it out. Uh, you had him ranked low. So did I. He was QB 19 in my rankings. And looking back, I think I was pretty stupid to do that, considering Miami's pass defense. They're the fourth worst in the league by DVOA entering the week. You couple that with the fact that Miami is good against the run. They rank second to DVOA there. Their defensive line ranks fifth in adjusted line yards, uh, according to Football Outsiders. And the Jets offense was smartly funneled to the pass. Like we can expect that to happen against that sort of defense. I think my big overall mistake in terms of how I ranked McCown was I feel like I put too much stock into like the individual players or the individual matchups that certain players had. And I just kind of generally liked those more than either McCown or the matchup against the Dolphins. What I should have done was maybe forecast like the combination the combinations of the players in those matchups holistically. So, like, I looked at some of the QBs I had ranked ahead of him. I had uh, Big Ben ranked ahead of him, and I, I don't think that makes sense. The Cincinnati defense was better than the Dolphins' defense, and Roethlisberger hasn't really been better than McCown to this point in this season. So why rank Big Ben ahead of McCown? There's strike one. Uh, I had Palmer uh, ranked ahead of McCown as well, and as I discussed earlier, their offensive line stinks. They're playing against Aaron Donald and the Rams defense, which is really good at rushing the passer. So strike two, why did I rank him above McCown? Brett Hundley, you know, uh, his first start of the season against a New Orleans defense that's better than most people realize. Strike three, do I get more strikes after three? Because I also ranked Jared <laughs> Goff, uh, you know, and Phillip Rivers, both in, I don't know, just spots where I, I 
should have seen it. I feel like I could have figured this out and I didn't for whatever reason. I just, it's Josh McCown. So I didn't trust him. And I don't know if that's wrong, but in hindsight, it feels wrong. It feels like I should have at least seen some of these guys, you know, underperforming him uh, as a little more clear. I just feel like it was a situation where maybe if I had done projections, it would have told a better story in terms of, you know, points expected in this particular matchup against that defense. What do you think about that? I agree with you that uh, Josh McCown, I mean, I I really want to look into him because it's one thing to just look at hindsight. And, yeah, he almost doubled what I had projected for him. But uh, 14-team mocker on on Twitter, he – when Sal was uh, pushing my article this week, he – 14-team mocker – commented and about how much I hate Josh McCown. So <laughs> good call by so, him, man. Yeah. So I want to ask him what he saw, because that means we don't just have to look at hindsight. <laughs> I can actually ask him what it was that he saw. So maybe that will be more telling than just looking at the stats and looking at some of the matchups from yesterday. Yep. The, um, the only other QB who I really considered, I had Carr and McCown as my 1A and, and 1B there. I think that the other guy who, and this is more a testament to my problems with Jared Goff, but I think Jared Goff qualifies as well. He was QB9, almost scored 19 fantasy points, and I just, I don't know, I need to start coming around on him a little bit more, or I need to start coming around on the Arizona defense not being a bad matchup. And and I think that this was a, a telling week on both fronts. Like, I think that that Cardinals defense is not very good relative to what I thought it was, and Goff is a little better than I thought it was, and this was kind of a, a convergence of those two things. I think that he, he has a case to be the boom of the week, but I, I agree that Carr and McCown are probably the, the, the top choices. Right, and Jared Goff is one of the quarterbacks I – highlighted in my article as uh, one that I was projecting higher than what I was seeing as the consensus. And a little bit of that has been his performance, but it was mostly the Arizona matchup. Patrick Peterson is awesome, but outside of that, they have not been able to contain the pass. Yep. And we're going to continue to see that they have, you know, problems beyond Peterson and, and it's, it's, it's going to get worse now that their offense is bad, too. Um, let's get to the bust of the week. Who was the quarterback that underperformed your expectations the most uh, in Week 7? The guy who, you know, disappointed you? Because uh, there, there are a lot of options. Yeah, and uh, this one is another quarterback that I highlighted as someone I was high on, and it was Mar- Marcus Mariota. And I was, re- I was expecting huge things. Uh, he had had a great floor so far, and the, the ceiling had been capped. He was between 15 and 21 points pretty much, and I just expected it to see it go anywhere above 20, and the sky's the limit in that matchup, but that that, <laughs> that was... Uh, it was bad. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an ugh situation. I, I mean, I totally agree with you. He's definitely the bust of the week. That Cleveland defense had just been so favorable. Like like I was talking about with the Dolphins defense uh, regarding McCown's blowup, the Cleveland defense also tends to funnel teams to pass the ball more. And that makes the performance by Mariota all that more disappointing. I, I do think that it's not totally his fault. I think the play calling has to take some of the blame because 
Tennessee ran the ball 31 times. They averaged 2.3 yards per carry. It just clearly was not the right matchup to stubbornly stick to that exotic smash mouth nonsense. Like you got to have better game planning. You got to let Mariota try to win that for you with his arm, with those receivers. I don't get it, man. That was just a, a really bad performance by not just him, by, by the team, by the organization. And, and that, that bums me out. Um, couple yeah. other honorable mentions or dishonorable mentions. Cam Newton, QB 23 under eight points. That was bad. Uh, but again, we talked about how that was a little fluky. Kind of the two turnovers were a little weird. And the turnovers also created just like a really bad game script for Carolina. Um, Chicago was able to milk the clock with the running backs. I, I don't necessarily know if we want to put too much of that on Cam, but he didn't necessarily look good. I think that that team has some play calling problems as well. It, it really seems like when they get down, their offense becomes too predictable. It just becomes like, Dump it to Christian McCaffrey if I can't find a deep pass that I like. Have you? Did you watch any of that game? Did you see anything from Cam to give you hope, or maybe the opposite? Maybe maybe you do think that that performance was more of his fault. Not not this week. Uh, he he had a couple of good performances after a terrible start to the season, and it seemed he was clicking with Calvin Benjamin and Funchess was starting to emerge, and Funchess and Benjamin have been target hogs and Benjamin's done okay with it. And Funches has been, just been so inefficient. And Ed Dixon, after that monster game, his targets have been really inefficient and it's going on enough around the board that I would pin it to cam. He's had accuracy <laughs> issues throughout his career and he, he's gotten better, but it's just, it seems like now it's phases he has it, and then he doesn't. Yeah, the other thing that I don't like about watching him play, and this is probably tied to the accuracy stuff, is that just his touch throwing the ball never seems quite right. Like, he has one speed to throw it at, and it's like it's just like laser beam, right? He doesn't right. hit those touch passes with enough regularity, especially when you have a guy like McCaffrey, who sometimes you have to float the ball over a linebacker to get it to him, and... Yeah, he has those big receivers, too. I just don't know what to make of him. I think he's just going to be one of those squirrely fantasy options that you're going to have a hard time pegging from week to week. Like, sometimes he's going to be great, sometimes he's not. The last guy, I, well, I got two more guys I want to touch on for the bust of the week. The first doesn't really count. It's Matt Ryan, just because that matchup looks so good. And I don't think he's the bust of the week because he still scored, like, 18 fantasy points. And so he didn't he didn't kill you, but... Man, didn't we want more from him in that game? Yeah, and Julio Jones really saved him. Saved that was a, ass, yeah. <laughs> that was a six, seven, or eight point swing, depending on how many points you get for passing touchdowns. But Julio just <laughs> he just snatched. Uh, was that Butler? Yeah, Malcolm Butler. He, he, he was he like, just, "Give me that." He just snatched his soul. That was incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to see Julio get a red zone target and convert it like that. It's like, oh, maybe we should throw it to this guy more down here, even if he is covered. But yeah, um, Matt Ryan, disappointing. The other guy I want to talk about here is Kaiser. I mean, we talked about some of those matchups that we really liked, and for me, Tennessee was one of them. But I'm starting to come around on them maybe not being that good of a matchup. I mean, we saw Kaiser perform poorly they the titans have given up big weeks but they did that to oakland seattle and houston and all three of those teams we know have 
maybe not the best passing attacks, but quality passing attacks. You look at the other teams that the Titans have faced, Jacksonville, Miami, Indianapolis, and Cleveland, all those quarterbacks have finished with under 14 fantasy points against the Titans. So this might be one of those matchups where if it's against a good, competent quarterback, you can feel really good about starting them against Tennessee. But for the lesser than guys, for the mediocre QBs, maybe that tight end or that Tennessee defense is going to show up a little bit uh, better than what we might have thought after the first few weeks of the season. Right. <laughs> uh, anything else you got on week seven before we move on to week eight? Yeah, I wanted to touch on the two QBs poster boy, Alex Smith. Ooh. What a season it's been. Um, I, I was just laughing to myself uh, when I was looking at <laughs> the week seven quarterback performances. And I projected Alex Smith as my number four quarterback. I didn't feel the need to defend it, he, he, <laughs> which is crazy in its own <laughs> in its own right. He finishes with three touchdowns, no picks, 28 points. He finishes as the quarterback four, um, right around there, depending on your scoring. And neither of us had to mention him as our boom of the week. It's just, <laughs> that is it's just wild. funny. Just uh, imagine telling sell that last year you know he'd say well of course but <laughs> <laughs> imagine but, telling right. anyone else is the thing right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah man it was it's 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 been a weird season it's all and we say that every year every year is a weird season but this felt like a weird week like the fog sky cam thing in new england was crazy a couple unexpected shootouts the jets in miami and then tampa bay and buffalo i i heard this stat when I, I had to pick up my wife from the airport yesterday, and so I was listening to the fantasy sports radio on Sirius in her car, and they threw out this stat. It was, what was it? It was six teams, I think, failed to score an offensive touchdown. It might have ended up being seven after um, the late games, but it, it's isn't that ridiculous? Like, there were seven teams that did not score an offensive touchdown yesterday. Two of them were in the same game, Tennessee and Cleveland. What a train wreck. Yeah, that that was ridiculous. And yeah, like you said, three shutouts, six or seven teams not scoring on offense, and it, it neither of those have happened in recent memory. And it was just a weird week, especially like you said with the with the few blowouts that were unexpected and the New England Atlanta game not being a shootout. Like, it, <laughs> every week seems odd, but at least for this year, it was definitely. It was definitely a weird week. So normally when we move on to the week eight preview, I would start with who your streamer of the week is. But because we were talking about Alex Smith, I like that you brought him up. I want to do our clipboard holder of the week first. This is the quarterback who you would normally start in any given two QB league, but maybe you're avoiding him this week. And I think a lot of people would look at Alex Smith against the Denver Broncos and say, oh, well, he's got to be in consideration for a guy you would bench. And like you said, He's not that type of player anymore, and specifically this Denver defense is not that bad of a matchup, not what we're used to, at least against the pass. They've really shored up that defense against the run, but they've allowed top 20 finishes to five out of the six quarterbacks they faced this year. They've given up 15 or more fantasy points to four out of the six QBs they faced, and those two quarterbacks who didn't do it, the bad weeks, quote-unquote, were against Derek Carr the week he got injured and was replaced by A.J. Manuel. And the other was against Eli Manning, minus his top three receivers. So I don't know about you, but Smith looks like a fine start to me yet again. Yeah, I, it's crazy to say, but I, I, I'm still starting him against Denver. 
They haven't been as scary of a matchup as in the past, and I just think the way that Andy Reid is drawing up plays, he's he's just finding ways to get his athletic players in open space, and Alex Smith reaps the benefit, whether it's a shovel pass that Travis Kelsey takes for 30 yards and flies into the end zone, or Tyreek Hill just getting wide open one second into the play. Uh, it, it definitely uh, dampen expectations a bit. It's still the Broncos' defense. They still have the top trio of cornerbacks in the NFL, but but I, I trust Andy Reid and Alex Smith this year. Yeah, I mean, they may, he, might, he might not be QB4 for you this week, but he'll probably almost certainly be in your top 20. So who is the quarterback who you are worried about uh, on this slate in Week 8? If you want to be really bold, you can say Tom Brady. <laughs> no. Um, all right, just a second. No, I take, um, take your time. I'm just sorry. I talk too much. But, yeah, <laughs> I, I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't done my projections for the week, but uh, one that stands out to me is Ben Roethlisberger, actually. And it's another one that seems weird. Roethlisberger at Detroit two years ago. That would be a phenomenal matchup, even though it's a away from home. It's it's in a dome, and Roethlisberger showed some promising things the last couple of weeks, at least connecting with Antonio Brown and letting Le'Veon Bell run like crazy and just throw people to the ground. But he's really struggled this year, and Detroit's defense is a lot better than it has been in the past, so. It's not a must-sit for me by any means, but he'll be, I'm guessing, somewhere between QB 18 and QB 24. It's just not a spot we usually see Roethlisberger against the Lions, but if you if you have a couple other quarterbacks with nice matchups, he's, I'm fine sitting Roethlisberger next week. Yep, and we'll get to some other QB options as potential streamers over these guys, but I agree. If you look at that Detroit defense, They've allowed, on average, the, a finish to quarterbacks of QB 20.2. So that 18 to 24 range seems about right. The points per game against them ranks 23rd among QBs. So it's been tough to to you know take advantage of that Lions defense this year. They've only given up one top 10 finish, one top 20 finish. Is that same that same game? I think it was to who was that to week five? I'm guessing that was Drew Brees. No, we, no, that was Cam Newton. Cam Newton, yep. Because yep. <laughs> Breeze was a little disappointing because their defense did so much work against the Lions that week. But, yeah, that's that's a fine matchup. I think I'm still starting Roethlisberger there for the most part. Um, my clipboard holder of the week is the guy on the opposite side of the ball, Matthew Stafford. The Steelers are the fantasy football's second toughest team on quarterbacks. They've only given up 9.91 points per game to QBs. They've allowed more than 11 fantasy points to quarterbacks only twice this season. Uh, from week two on, Stafford's highest score is 16.46 fantasy points. That was against Atlanta, and he hasn't finished any week higher than the QB 11. Um, and that was when he did that. That was in a bad week for quarterback scoring. That was when he was facing New Orleans. So I, I think Stafford's probably, of the two guys in that matchup, Stafford's the guy I'm more worried about just because that Steelers defense has been so good against the pass. Yeah, I'm definitely going to agree with you on that. Um, looking at that, the Steelers' defense has really been been awesome. I mean, they're 5-2, and two, and Roethlisberger struggled 
a lot. So. Yeah, he's been really bad. <laughs> what do you? So, I was gonna say, what do you think about Deshaun Watson at Seattle? This feels like one of those just really tough situations to decipher because Seattle's defense has still been very good against the pass. They've only allowed more than ten fantasy points to quarterbacks twice in six games. Both of those were on the road uh, at Green Bay in Week One and then at Tennessee in Week Three. This week they're at home. They're playing against a rookie quarterback. Haven't allowed a top 12 QB finish yet. So who do you think breaks in this situation? The unstoppable force in Deshaun Watson or the immovable object in Seattle? This one's tough because Deshaun Watson really hasn't been tested as far as uh, a tough defensive matchup. The, The only truly tough matchup he's been in is week one, and he was thrust in there without preparing as a starter so it's tough to gauge for me i i still think his rushing gives him a nice floor jared goff jacoby Brissett, marcus mariota and aaron Rodgers all got at least 20 yards rushing not insane but just two or three points in a tough matchup really helps you start a guy like that in fact, the the only quarterbacks that haven't gotten that many rushing yards against Seattle is Brian Hoyer and Eli Manning because they didn't <laughs> they didn't run the ball at all. So, but that that's that's still relatively minor, only a few points. But the way Deshaun Watson's been passing the ball, he's he's not a must sit for me in that situation. But it definitely will be telling going forward. Yeah, I'm just. I'm just struggling with where to rank him because he got to that point where he was almost a, a top 10 QB no matter what, just because of that rushing floor. And I'm interested to see how many times he takes the ball himself against this defense because, because their cornerbacks and safeties are still good. You know, like they're, they're not, he's not going to have as easy a windows to throw into this week as he has in previous weeks to DeAndre Hopkins and Will Fuller. So I think we could be in for a little bit of a rude awakening here, but yeah, I, I mean, he, I think he's startable. I think you're right. I don't think he's a must sit, but th- there might be a situation where if he was your QB three and your QB one and QB two from the draft were, you know, in better spots, I could see benching him if, if you had better options. Right. And there probably are a, a decent amount of teams where they still have a couple solid quarterbacks because Especially if you drafted late, he if he was after Savage was named the starter, he could be your quarterback four. But obviously he, he's crept up. But definitely if you if you have better options, Seattle is a situation to steer clear of. But a, a rookie against Seattle usually would scare the hell out of us, and it not so much with Deshaun Watson. What do you think about your Week 7 Boom of the Week, Derek Carr, going on the road to Buffalo? The Bills have allowed the sixth fewest fantasy points to quarterbacks before Jameis Winston's you know, garbage time comeback this past week. The Bills hadn't given up more than 14 fantasy points to a QB or a better weekly finish than QB 15. Carr seemed to put it together against the Chiefs, but I think that that Chiefs matchup was a little better than a lot of people might realize. And That game was in Oakland. This game is going to be in Buffalo And of course, because of that, there's that narrative street argument of West Coast team going east for an early start. Are you worried about Carr at all? I am a little bit because, like you said, Buffalo has been really tough against quarterbacks in fantasy 
Jameis Winston this past week had the first solid week against them. And when I, when I went to dive deeper into that, my expectation was that quarterbacks hadn't gotten volume against them. Maybe it was a pace thing, maybe the Bills grinding out the clock and stuff like that. But I looked through it, and I believe every quarterback against them got at least 32 attempts and some of them upwards of 40, and they still didn't score 15 points or more until this past weekend. So it's a it's a sneaky uh, matchup to, to fade, but if Derek Carr targets Cooper like he did last week, I, I, I still think he has significant upside. Yeah, I mean, at some point you got to kind of bet on the, the better talents, bet on the teams that have shown it to you before. And, and the players have shown it to you before. Uh, but I don't know. Carr is one of those guys who historically has had trouble against good defenses. And that's the question we have to answer here is, is Buffalo a good defense or not? Or like, is what we've seen the truth or is it some sort of mirage? And I think you're like, you're, you're correct to be skeptical about that. Like I'm skeptical too. That's why I asked the question. Like, I don't really honestly know what I want to do with Carr in that matchup, but I am, I have some concerns. Um, we skipped over the streamers of the week. Let's get back to that. And what we're looking for here, you know, the, I talk about this on the show all the time, but I never know how many new listeners we pick up each week. A streamer, quote unquote, in a two QB league isn't really something that you're going to find all that often. Yes, this week you could potentially get Cody Kessler or or Drew Stanton off the waiver wire, but generally most of the usable quarterbacks are going to be owned week to week. So what we're really looking for here isn't necessarily a streamer, one you pick up off of waivers. It's just a guy who you might already have on your roster as a backup who you're more willing to start this week based upon the matchup or some other factor. And I want to say that Tyrod Taylor is ineligible because I feel like I feel like he's a bit of a no-brainer at this point. He kind of always fits the criteria because you won't always start him given, you know, how bad that team is around him. But I think that he's always going to be a starter in, you know, fine to good to great matchups just because of that rushing upside and, and because we've seen him, you know, deliver time in and time again. Like, he's just not – I don't feel like there's any risk to starting Tyrod Taylor any any given week, and I want this segment to be a little more risky if, if, you, if you feel me. So pick a quarterback or two that you're looking at this week as a potential guy who – you wouldn't normally start in a 2QB league, but for whatever reason this week you, you like that player more. I may regret going back to this well, but uh, going against Cleveland, but Case Keenum, Yeah. it really depends if, if Diggs is going to be healthy, and I'm, I'm not sure. Have you seen anything about his outlook for this week? I haven't, but you picked the same guy as I have, and right in my notes, the, the first five words are who knows about Stefan Diggs. <laughs> so yeah, I'm right there with you. Like this seems like a prime spot for Keenum. Okay. Do you have any more notes on Keenum? Well, I would say, say what you're going to say about him. I didn't want to steal your thunder there. I just kind of wanted to chime in. Well, he was, he was my second option. Um, so it is really just the Cleveland situation and Diggs really needs to be healthy. But when he's been healthy, those, those, those guys are just, they're a great wide receiver tandem that came out of nowhere last year. but um, And Keenum, he doesn't have crazy high upside. He had that one great week, but besides that, it's really been 10 to 15 points, maybe a little less. 
But against Cleveland, uh, I, I'm hoping that <laughs> my uh, Marcus Mariota bad juju doesn't uh, come back to bite me again on that one. Yeah, wash your hands clean of that one. Um, look, looking at the matchup, though, it's just you look at this Cleveland defense. We talked about how they funnel to the pass because they are pretty stout against the run. They've allowed the eighth most points per game to quarterbacks before Mariota bombed. They had allowed every passer they faced to finish as the QB 16 or better for that given week. So there's an inherent floor here against Cleveland, and Case Keenum's a floor-type player, but he should hit it, man. Like They also rank 25th in DVOA against running backs as receivers, so even if Diggs doesn't play, I could see a little bit of... Uh, you know, extra game from Jarek McKinnon, a nice bounce back opportunity for him, maybe helping Keenum reach closer to his ceiling. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to see that that same sort of performance you mentioned earlier. Like, I think that was an outlier. Who's who's your first choice then if, if Keenum wasn't your number one guy? It's a similar play, like a, purely based on the matchup and also relying on one of his wide receivers making it back this week, and that's Trevor Simeon. And it looked bad this past week with Sanders out. I mean, the the Chargers, they have a pretty good defense, even though they're missing, who is it, Jason Verrett. They they really shut down Demaryius Thomas, and uh, besides the play that got called back, that 80-yard play, but and after that, there was nowhere to look. So this is purely contingent on Emmanuel Sanders playing, but if he does, Kansas City is, has been a great option for – for quarterbacks and and it's funny the three quarterbacks who haven't done great against them are maybe the three hall of fame or close to hall of fame quarterbacks brady rivers and roethlisberger and then some of the younger quarterbacks of carson wentz kirk cousins sean watson and Derek carr have all had at least 20 points Watson with that 40-point, five-touchdown game, and Carr last week. So that may be just a coincidence. But either way, even the bad games against the Chiefs still had a solid floor. We're going to have some some good radio here because I totally disagree with you on this one. (laughs) Like All those quarterbacks you mentioned, yes, some of them are Hall of Famers and they didn't do that well. But even the guys who you considered like lesser than, I think all of those guys – are better than Trevor Simeon. Would you disagree with that? You're definitely right there. Um, so, so, like, when I see this matchup, I saw Derek Carr torch this defense last week, but that was in Oakland. This is in Arrowhead. Simeon is just not the same caliber of quarterback as these other guys they're they're facing. This feels like a trap to me, and I I think that Simeon is. I have him listed in my list of potential streamers for this reason because you can't ignore what these other teams have done against them, but. Right. Just based upon the player here, this is one of those things where, like I was talking about with McCown earlier, like I was ranking McCown behind guys either with like very bad matchups or guys who I just don't like as much as McCown, and I don't want to do that again here with Semyon. Like I think that Semyon is bad, and if if I think that, then even the fact that he's in a good matchup, I, I need to temper my expectations there. Now, I agree with you. Emmanuel Sanders could make a huge difference because Amari Cooper, Will Fuller, those burner types of wide receivers, those speedy guys, those are the ones who have really taken advantage of the Kansas City defense, exploiting that middle of the field where where Eric Reed is no longer there. Or not Eric Reed, Eric Berry, excuse me. Right. So, yeah, I, I don't know. This one feels like a stay away for me. Um, I don't know. Do you want to try to change my mind? 
No, you you've uh, convinced me a little bit. Uh, I have to see where my projections play out, but <laughs> you made a good case. But I I still think he'll have a solid floor. Maybe the ceiling isn't as good in that matchup that uh, as some of the those young quarterbacks I was naming because they are better than him. But but looking at Trevor Simeon over the last year and a half he's actually a he actually has a pretty good high ceiling compared to compared to his average output that's something that i think isn't obvious because he just doesn't seem like that type of player but it's just one where with emmanuel sanders and demarius thomas i think any quarterback has a high ceiling Yep, you're right. It's totally a testament to his receivers. Like, every time he's had those huge weeks, like week one this year, um, I can't remember what week it was last year, but he was, like, far and away the QB1 in a given week. It It's just because he can lean on Demarius to go up and get balls. He can lean on Emmanuel Sanders to get open. And when you have those sorts of playmakers as a quarterback, you're always not too far away from like a three touchdown game. And so that's definitely within the range of outcomes. Like I I just think that there are other quarterbacks I'd rather bank on. What do you think about Semyon versus Case Keenum? If you had to pick one of those guys to start, who would you start? Uh, Are are we assuming that uh, both of the wide receivers are playing? Yeah, no, let's say, let's say Sanders plays. Cause I think if we, we can agree that if Sanders doesn't play, that he would not, that Semyon's probably not worth starting, right? I will say Simeon just because I think with with Keenum, even with those wide receivers, he still hasn't shown a very high ceiling. It's those receivers will get a lot of yards, but there there hasn't been that many touchdowns. There's only been one game where he had multiple touchdowns so far this year, and he's faced a tough slate so far. So maybe. Cleveland will <laughs> I, I hope Cleveland helps buck that trend, but Simeon I believe in his ceiling even without a supreme matchup, but Keenum definitely has a better matchup. Okay. A uh, couple other guys I wanna run past you here, and the first is Joe Flacco. This matchup against the Dolphins, it worked for Josh McCown. Could it work for Flacco? Nah, probably not. <laughs> no, he's <laughs> His stable of weapons is just so depleted, and he he hasn't shown us any reason to trust him. But let's not waste time on him. Let's move on. I agree with you. <laughs> I think Flacco's just not startable, period. Um, Jacoby Brissett at the Bengals. What do you think about that one? I, I think it's a solid floor play. The, o- the only quarterbacks that have had truly bad weeks against the Bengals are uh, Deshaun Kaiser and Joe Flacco. Tyrod didn't do that great. Um, he only had 166 yards, so they've really been limiting passing yards, but they're, they're not a shutdown defense to me. And Brissett proved this is something I talked about in my article that week seven was going to be really telling for Brissett's floor, just like it will be for Watson's against Seattle next week. Brissett against the Jaguars put up 11 points. And, I mean, you're not, you're not thrilled with that. But if you're backed into a corner where you have to start Jacoby Brissett against one of the toughest matchups and he gets 11 points, I'm, I'm fine starting him against the Bengals. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. I think he's a fine 
desperation is the right word, but you know, slightly desperate play. My main concern is the the, the point that you brought up that against bad offenses, Cincinnati has been pretty good against Baltimore, Cleveland, and Buffalo. All three of those quarterbacks were held to under nine fantasy points, and so I don't know if Brissett is in that same tier of. I mean, I I don't think he's as good as Tyrod, and so that's part of what has me worried. But I think some of the pieces around Brissett are better than what Tyrod has. So I don't right. know. Maybe maybe you call that a wash. <laughs> he just needs to connect with T.Y. Hilton. Uh, yep. T.Y. Hilton only catches two of the eight targets and. No one else truly shows up, and he still managed double-digit fantasy points, so I'm fine with starting him. Uh, do you have any other streamer potentials? I have uh, at least one in mind. No, I've, I've got a couple more. Who do you have? No, you go ahead. <laughs> All right, so the two that I have are Josh McCown against Atlanta. We can go back to that well because Atlanta's allowed a top-20 quarterback finish to everyone they face this season, and the other is C.J. Bathard. This is riskier because he's going on the road at Philly, and we saw against Dallas, even at home, Bethard did not look very good, but he has that rushing upside. He's already the QB 24 in points per game. Uh, His weekly finishes are QB 16 and QB 15 over the past two weeks, and that's not even starting the the game two weeks ago. So I I don't know. I think that he's a a fine desperation play. I think McCown is, is completely startable just because Atlanta's defense isn't all that good. Right, and we named Trevor Simeon and uh, who was it? Case Keenum as potentially potential ceiling plays and bad matchups. But if you're looking for a higher floor or Diggs or Sanders misses the game, uh, Josh McCown is the perfect floor play for a streamer this week. In five of his seven games, he's had at least. 15 fantasy points and in the other two he played really tough defenses in Buffalo and Jacksonville and like you said Atlanta's been giving up a ton of points to quarterbacks and I guess not a ton but they they've had a a really high floor between 13 and 20 points and if you can expect that out of a streamer and maybe a little bit more if you think Josh McCown, I mean, he's really been clicking with his wide receivers the last three weeks. He's had multiple touchdowns. He, he's he's a fine play as a streamer this week. Yep, he's, he's probably the guy I like the most after uh, those those other two we mentioned. Um, actually, I might even like him more than Brissett, but I, I think I might like him more than Keenum, too. So maybe, maybe McCown is my streamer of the week, but I, I want to say Keenum just because... Again, I, I like to fly a little closer to the sun with these calls and try to pick the guys who are less likely to be owned at this point. So I have a feeling McCown is owned in all two QB leagues, and there might be some leagues where, based upon the Sam Bradford stuff or the Teddy Bridgewater stuff, where you might have been able to scoop up Case Keenum last week for nothing, but I don't know. Um, what else are you interested in for Week 8? Anything anything major on the horizon that, you're, uh, that you can't wait to, to, I don't know, get some more data on? Or just games you're excited for, like anything really. I'm excited. I, I haven't been watching tonight's game, actually. It's uh, 10.15 on the East Coast, 7.30 for you, Greg. Uh, are you watching it in the background? No, I, I 
the curse of me recording this podcast on Monday nights is that I rarely get to watch the beginning of the game. I'll probably turn it on while I'm <laughs> editing afterwards, but um, what, do you have it on in the background? Do you know what the score is? No. Um, I was just going to pull that up, but I was going to say I'm looking forward to see if Wentz can keep up the magic that he's had. It's 17-10 at halftime. Eagles are up. Okay. And it looks like... Doxon's getting a little bit more involved, which is very exciting for me. That is that is nice. And, man, Chris Thompson has another friggin' touchdown. Does he really? <laughs> yeah, another receiving touchdown. He only has two catches for 14 yards, but one of them went for a TD. Man, just... <laughs> what an unbelievable season. Yeah, my uh, I think he just carried me over the top in Scott Fishbowl, and I really need a win there. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, Wentz, Wentz has two touchdowns on 13 attempts so far. To Zach Ertz, he's been on fire. He's so good. Even without many catches. And the rookie, Matt Collins, got a long touchdown. So Alshon Jeffrey hasn't done much. And neither has Nelson Aguilar. And Carson Wentz still has 12, 14 fantasy points at the half against a decent team. I just he he's been great this year. Um, this is something where at least now the <laughs> it seems like the film and the stats are lining up on him, and there was a lot of debate on that last year. And it, it's nice to see that when those things combine. And I'm looking forward to him against the 49ers next week. Yeah, that's going to be a smash spot for him yet again because those 49ers cornerbacks are so, so bad. Interesting, A couple of interesting notes from this box score now that we're talking about it. Both teams are really spreading the ball around. Neither team has a player with more than three targets, and most of the guys that they targeted have either three or two. Uh, Terrell Pryor does not have a target. Uh, Doxon has three. Crowder has three. Jordan Reed has three. And, yeah, those are your, your key target leaders for Washington. And Ver- Vernon Davis has 62 yards and two catches. <laughs> yep. Uh, looks like they're both 31-yarders as well, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Carson, Carson Wentz, four carries for 26 yards. That, that's an underrated part of his game, I think, that athletic ability and his willingness to break the pocket and run every once in a while. We've seen him do that a little bit this season, and that's always good for fantasy, right? Right, and... uh he hasn't been able to punch it in as consistently as Kirk Cousins, but I would expect that to change going forward. Uh, I think he got a rushing touchdown last week, uh, if not the week before, and he really he's a great scrambler and he, he he's not afraid to just put it put his head down and run. He, he's not afraid of a collision. I know the the Eagles have been trying to work on that, but. Uh, as as long as he stays healthy, that's good for fantasy purposes. Yeah, I'll, I'll take your note for Carson Palmer looking ahead to next week, and I'll I'll do the opposite with the other guy from this uh, game, Kirk Cousins. I'm really looking forward to that game between Dallas and Washington. I just think it has a lot of shootout potential. That could be a really fun game because you know both of those quarterbacks are playing pretty well, and those defenses aren't that great. And the other game, probably the game I'm most interested in from like a tactical standpoint and just kind of getting more information about how good these teams actually are, is the Chargers going to play at New England. Uh, L.A. has won three straight games. Their defense keeps looking better and better. And yeah. Oh, go ahead. And they, they had some close losses early yep. in the year. They lost two purely on last-second field goal misses. And 
last year they were I, I forget how many wins somewhere between five and seven maybe even four and twelve but they had eight close losses and that's just they're a lot better than three and four and with the way New England's defense has struggled before last night that'll be interesting to see yeah and that's it like on the other side of the ball the Patriots defense started to turn it around there after their bye I want to see if they can keep up that improvement because the Chargers offense is pretty potent like that just seems like a really interesting matchup schematically in terms of you know how the game flow is going to break how each offense is going to be able to perform against the opposing defense just a, a fascinating game to me I'm really looking forward to that one yeah and Philip Rivers besides uh the atrocious line he put up against Kansas City, He's he's been really solid. No breakout games. The games where he had three touchdowns, he didn't have too many yards. So the ceiling's been capped, but the his floor has really been there besides the Chiefs game. And even in the one game where the Patriots finally put it together, Matt Ryan was able to put up 233 yards a touchdown and didn't turn the ball over so Rivers is a sneaky quarterback one next week uh, I don't know maybe maybe he's not that sneaky <laughs> I, I don't I'm not I'd have to pull up where he's ranked in the past but it just seems like he's been quiet every week but he, he's been really solid yeah he's just been boring and it's this is the thing with, with projecting quarterbacks for fantasy is there are so many guys who are so close in value. It's You really have to take it to these weird, like either big picture views or these really granular views to find out where you're going to get those edges in terms of how you project these guys, how you rank them week to week. And we're going to be wrong so much. Like I, I've made so many bad calls already this season and we still have how many weeks left? Like, geez. Um, <laughs> it's 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 fun though it's challenging that's why we do it and one of the best oh, resources yeah. for for doing that week to week is your article sean that two qb or not two qb super flex decisions article i love it i read it every week and it's not just because it's you know two qb stuff like i'm gonna read everything that's on the site anyway but i i genuinely enjoy the work you put into that and the the thought you put into it the willingness you have to make you know unique decisions like ranking alex smith qb4 you know stuff like that like trusting your projections it's it's cool to see and um i can't wait to keep reading it for the rest of the year so listeners check that out um sean why don't you let folks know where they can find you on social media um tell them about anything else you're working on stuff like that on twitter you can find me at slavin22 that's s-l-a-v-i-n-2-2 as far as social media, uh, that's my go-to. Uh, I won't pump any other. I, I rarely use any other sites. But my weekly article that you mentioned at 2QBs.com, I really appreciate the, the feedback on that. It's been a really fun article. I'm glad you and Sal came to me with that. It's been really useful in my week-to-week process, I, I'd be doing similar things even if I wasn't writing an article, but it, it lets me put devote a lot of time into it and really learn a lot about the matchups. Besides that, um, I have one article out at Rotaviz. Um, Charlie over there wishes <laughs> it was more probably. He's bugged me to do a couple, but... Uh, been a little too busy between uh, school, work, and 
my weekly article. So maybe you'll see me at Rotoviz in the future. And I also do some consulting at a draft day consultant. That's about it. Good deal, man. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Um, listeners, if you have any questions for us here at 2QBs, uh, 2QBs on Twitter, uh, 2QBs at gmail.com. If you want to send us some longer form questions, uh, in both cases, you spell that out, T-W-O-Q-B-S. Uh, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing the podcast, that always helps us out. We'd appreciate it. Otherwise, good luck in week eight, and we'll catch you next time on the 2QB Experience. Adios. Adios.